Rose, and welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we discuss modern media that depicts the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. My name is Julia. I am your resident Greek literature specialist and language person. And I'm Allison. Um, I've got a background in uh, late antique studies and Roman archaeology. And today, at, at long last, we are finally discussing the final Percy Jackson book, The Last Olympian. Yay! We made it! We made it all the way through the series! We're all done. This Rick Riordan series. <laughs> Bro, we're gonna have to do some condensing if and when we get to, like, other Rick Riordan books, because this has been so many episodes, and, like, much as I love talking about Percy Jackson, I also feel like a lot of the big stuff that is the most important to me in terms of how Rick Riordan does reception we talked about extensively in the first few episodes and now it's just like specifics which we've already kind of I mean I feel like we've already come to a consensus on what we think about how Rick Riordan does classical reception. I still think there's like good and useful stuff to like talk about with Rick Riordan but yeah I don't think we need to devote an episode to every single book. Yeah we can like pick and choose but this has been really informative, I think, for us in terms of, like, you know, Percy Jackson, I'm just gonna, like, reflect back on the whole series for a hot second here. We're very unscripted today, and also it's extremely hot where I am, and I might be a little loopy. I I do think it's funny that you're recording in a heat wave again, because yeah. the last episode we recorded, like... bro. <laughs> last summer was in the heat wave. So yeah, dear audience, it's been almost a year since we recorded our last Percy Jackson episode. Obviously, we've recorded other episodes since, but also we've been really inconsistent. Sorry about that. I got into grad school again and have been dying. And Allison has like a super intense job and also has been dying. Yes. We will probably continue to be inconsistent and infrequent with our episodes, but, like, thank you for bearing with us and listening to our podcast anyways. We have a lot of fun making it. We're going to aim for consistency. However, we will probably fall short of that goal. Yeah, like, is that going to happen? I don't know. Probably not. But that's okay, because you love us and are willing to wait an infinite amount of time for another Classically Trained episode, <laughs> right? I want to say also, uh, if any of my coworkers are listening, um, thanks for listening. You know about my podcast now. Uh, hopefully this isn't horrifically embarrassing for me. Um, but yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see how this one goes. But yeah, like I, anyway, so reflecting back on Percy Jackson a little bit, like I feel like this series particularly these first five books, are a lot of people's introduction as kids to, like, Greek mythology in, like, another, like, some more obscure stuff, and also, like, what's possible in terms of classical reception. So I think it was important for us to take our time and really work through these these in, in like, a thoughtful way. But I also know that only, like, the devoted fans tended to go on to read the other ones. So, like, I think it's fair and fine for us to not take as much time with the other ones, but it was it was really important to us, I think, to to really give Percy Jackson the time that it's due because this has been a lot of people's introduction to antiquity, to classics, like whatever you want to say over the past like 
kind of 15 years. So um, I'm glad that we could do this and that we did get all the way through and that finally at last we are talking about the final one and that we're here. I'm excited. I, I am excited to talk about this one. We'll see how how it goes. Yes. So, okay. Should I do the recap? Yes, you can, you can try your best to do a recap. We had a conversation about this before the podcast, and Julia was like, this is a really hard book to recap, so I'm just going to let Julia do whatever she's going to do, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, so great. We today are discussing The Last Olympian, the fifth Percy, the fifth and final Percy Jackson uh, book, which was released on uh, in 2009 by Rick Riordan. In this book, they have a bunch of battles <laughs> and then they win. And then that's the end of the series. Like, yes, there's really it's really hard to recap this one because it's like first Percy is fighting in a boat. Then Percy is fighting in the underworld. Then Percy, like, goes and, like, takes a dunk in the river Styx and is just, like, on fire or whatever. And then uh, Percy is fighting in New York. And then everybody is fighting in New York. And then he's fighting on Mount Olympus with Kronos. And then Kronos, like, Luke, who whose body Kronos is possessing, like, does his like he'll face turn and uh saves everybody and everybody has complicated feelings about it uh and then the gods are like what do you uh thanks for saving olympus i guess we won't kill you and also hey percy you want to be a god and he's like no which like a good choice um the gods are assholes and instead he's like please recognize all of the children of all of the gods, including the minor gods, so that this does not happen again. And, like, that's... But it's, like, the bulk of the book is, like, them fighting. Yes. The important things are the river sticks, the thing with Luke, and also in the background, uh, Rachel Elizabeth Dare, who is Percy's, like, mortal friend, who is a girl, not his mortal girlfriend, distinctly, as per this book, but his friend who is a girl, uh, she becomes the Oracle at the end of the book, the new Oracle. Yeah, so I'm curious as to what you thought about the book. Like, how how much did you enjoy it? I'm assuming you did not hate this book. No, I didn't hate this one. This was definitely my least favorite one in the series. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I can see why that would be the case, like, structurally. Because structurally, it's not... It's not a classically structured novel in the way that a lot of the other novels are. Yeah. So I have something to say about its structure and its pacing, which are both mm. a little messy, but I think there's yeah. a reason for that. There's an interesting thing. And so, okay. So in this episode, we are, we, and by, and by we, I mean, I are going to be talking about the Iliad a lot. And one of the things that I think is going on in this book is that in certain ways it is structured very similarly to the Iliad, to the point where there are even certain emotional beats that fall in the same chapter of this novel as they fall in the book of the Iliad. I will elaborate on that down the line. But, like, the Iliad is not a novel. 
It is not structured like a novel. And if you tried to read the Iliad like a novel, you would be like, wow, the pacing in this is terrible. So I think that in certain ways, whether Riordan was doing this intentionally or not, having some of the same kind of pacing beats as the Iliad means that this novel is not really paced like a novel. It doesn't. And so there are big chunks of it that I was like, okay, they're fighting. Like, I, whatever. I don't care. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting observation that I had not, yeah, I had not noticed it at all. That's really interesting. Uh, We can talk about that more in a little bit. Mm -hmm. I will say this book is particularly interesting for me because, so this book, I remember exactly when this book came out. I was in grade seven um, and I went to see Rick Riordan speak when this book came out and he signed my copy. So this is my signed copy of the book because I I had it when I was a kid. I did not take very good care of this book. I was reading this book and I turned this page and I'm like, I'm pretty sure these are like soy sauce stains all over this page. Amazing. So yeah, even the physical book does hold a lot of memories for me. So I feel very fond of this book and thus my assessment of its like qualities as a novel are probably not going to be as good as Julia's because like I just enjoy reading this for like emotional reasons and not necessarily like stuff that has to do with the structure or the pacing of the book. Yeah. And I mean, this is all not to say that I didn't enjoy this book. Like it's fast paced. There's, there's a lot going on. There are things about it that I didn't like, um, or that I found a little, just like not as strong as I found even the same thing in previous books. So like, okay, so here's my example for that. And and I wanted to bring this up right off the top because this was also my impression right off the top of the book. The humor in this book is mu- feels more forced because mm. we are reaching the crux of the plot. Like people are dying in the streets of New York, quite literally. Like the war is here. They are fighting a war. And Percy is still cracking wise in the narration or making these very... The way that his phrasing is hits as a little too irreverent at times in the early chapters. So, like, I pulled out a quote from chapter one, which I felt was maybe an okay example of this. This is so I have the I have the ebook out from the library, so I don't have pagination, like regular pagination. So I'm just gonna cite chapters, but this is like from kind of partway through chapter one. Percy says, I kicked Kronos in the chest. He stumbled backwards, but he was heavier than Luke should have been. It was like kicking a refrigerator. Which is like okay, you're like that's like an okay way to make that observation, but it feels a like a fairly irreverent way to make the observation that like Kronos is heavy and immovable that hits a little odd with the more intense tone themes and events of this particular novel because we are dealing with like betrayal and like you know romance and warfare and again like people are dying people are dealing with grief um you know both in terms of, like, families, parents, and children, and, like, you know, people losing their significant others and stuff like that. And so some of this, some of that type of humor 
hit a little weird for me where I was kind of like, I don't know if I want like a joke here, you know, but I also understand that it's part of the style of these books and it's consistent with the earlier books in the series. It's just that for this book, it hit, it didn't hit right for me. Yeah, I can definitely see what you mean. Now, like remembering reading this book as a kid, this book hits very different as a kid because you can't quite appreciate how serious it is when you're younger because reading this as an adult I'm like there are kids dying right left and center here like this is well and like this book this is a lot like Luke commits suicide to save everybody at the end of the book yes like that's that's real that's hard to deal with and and like I mean we can come around to my feelings about like like redemption arcs that end in somebody sacrificing themselves uh to save everybody but like all that aside that's like real and serious and something that is like oh like like whoa (laughs) you know and and yet there's still so many jokes in the lead up it definitely eases off or at least i stopped noticing it as the book went on but yeah the first few chapters in particular I want to say the first like six to eight chapters, I was like, this is pretty jarring. Yeah, I think the thing is, is so these books are still like definitely written for kids. Like, yeah, now like, you know, they get a little bit definitely like more serious. But I think the fact that there's still that that like humor in there is it's really like aimed at children. I don't remember it being particularly jarring when I was a kid. And I didn't, I like noticed it this time around. I didn't necessarily find it super jarring. But yeah, that wasn't, I think that's like probably just a feature of it's written for children. I suspect you're right. And like, I don't, I'm not saying that it was bad or wrong. Like this is Mm -hmm. one of those things that was like, this had an effect on my personal reading experience and, and any other adult reader approaching these books, particularly if they're approaching them for the first time as an adult, you may have the same or similar experience to what I had, but also you may not. And yeah, like young readers are probably not going to have the same experience. So I'm not saying that Rick Riordan was doing anything wrong in doing it this way. And and obviously, like, I actually think it's for the better that the style and the level of humor and like like the style of narration, all that stuff is like very consistent throughout the series. Like I applaud that. As a writer, I know how hard that can be, particularly writing books over multiple years and so on. Um... It was just like it had an effect on my personal reading experience and I thought it would be worth bringing up. Oh yeah, no, totally. I I completely know what you mean. That being said, some of the bits were still actually very funny and I I have a list uh, that says funny bits that I'm going to bring bring up at the end of the podcast because Okay, I look forward to it. There were some funny bits. So, I don't know where you want to start. So you know the sources and I don't. So I'm I'm going to leave it to you to well, make a decision here. You you came with a list prepared of like stuff that came up in this book that you don't know about. So would you why don't you just pitch me a ball and I will do my best to address where certain stuff in this book came from because yeah there's a lot of like there's a lot of big names there's a lot of big themes um i definitely want to talk about the iliad but like aside from that i'm happy to get into like any of the people and things that appeared in this book okay well i think since this like chronologically comes earlier in the book like 
one of the main plot points is is Percy dipping himself into the sticks in order to become invulnerable, just like Achilles does. I believe, okay, so as far as my memory goes, does Achilles get, doesn't his, like, uh, doesn't Thetis, like his mom, in other mythology, like, dangle him over a fire or something? So there is a... So in the, I believe that the fire thing is actually um, the Homeric hymn to Demeter and Demeter tried to give the gift of immortality or invulnerability or something to one of the children of the family that hosted her when she was in the guise of like an old woman um, searching for her daughter in Eleusis. So, and, and she was stopped from doing that because they like walked in on her putting the baby in the fire and were like, what? are you doing? And so she like ran off after, or she like reveals herself to be a goddess. This is, this is fully just my memory. I actually haven't, I, I, I need to read the Homeric to Demeter this summer, but I haven't gotten to it yet. So I haven't refreshed <laughs> my memory on it in a while, but my memory is that the putting the baby in the fire thing comes from there. And it's not Achilles. That's no, just a different baby. That's just a different okay. baby. Random baby who <laughs> did not ultimately become immortal either. So like, he didn't remain super important. He's very important to the, like, mystery cult at Eleusis, but not very important to, like, the broader mythological canon. So, yes, Thetis dips her baby in the river Styx. She holds him by the end of his ankle, like, the, the edge of his his ankle, his Achilles tendon, whatever. Um, and so that becomes where her fingers touch. That's where he was vulnerable there's an extremely funny, I, I actually think that I posted like screenshots of this or something on our Twitter early on because I remember talking about this post once before, the extremely funny Tumblr post that's like, why didn't Thetis just like put him in one of these things and swish him around and it's like a photo <laughs> of a, like a fryer basket. Just, like, swish that boy around like chicken nuggets, uh, and then he'd be invulnerable all over. But Thetis did not have a fryer basket. She only had her own two, like, immortal hands. So she dunked him into the river Styx, and he became invulnerable, except for that one small uh, part of his body. And so, and so that story surely has early, like, like, earlier Greek roots, but my understanding is that we have that story from Statius's Achilleid, which is a Latin epic of, I want to say, the early imperial period. And so, yeah, like that's a lot, it's a Latin epic and it details Achilles's early life, including like, you know, his, uh, there's a lot of stuff in there about his relationship with his mother. I don't know that this epic is complete or that we have all of it, but we certainly have chunks of it. And we have some of this stuff about like the river sticks. And then we also have, for example, like the Skiros episode where Thetis like makes Achilles dress up as a woman and go hide amongst the maidens of Skiros so that he won't be brought to Troy because she knows that if he goes to war, he'll die. And yeah, so, so that's where that comes from. And as well as like a lot of our stuff about Achilles' early life, a lot of it comes from Statius. Um, 
some stuff comes from Homer, of course, but actually, like, you know, the Iliad is really focused on the events of the Trojan War. There's not that much about the lead up and about, like, Achilles or any other hero in particular. Um, this is a dumb question, but wait, but Achilles is invulnerable in the Iliad, isn't he? Or is that not stated? To be honest, I don't know that it's stated because I can't, yeah, this is like, this is like the kind of thing that I should probably know off the top of my head, but I actually <laughs> don't because Achilles gets described as, you know, like immortal and like super strong and like, you know, he's, so he's obviously ki- like godly in the Iliad as far as, you know, he is a demigod. He is, he is like the best of the Greeks. He's this very powerful warrior and, and unmatched in combat and also nigh invulnerable at times. Like when he has, so in the Iliad, various heroes have what's called an, an Aristea or an Aristea where they go on a big rampage and kill a bunch of people. Diomedes has one really early on that really slaps. Um, Patroclus gets one right before he's killed. Um, and then Achilles has one that lasts like two books. And like <laughs> while he's after, like after Patroclus's death and, and it's like while he's doing that, that he like does stuff like fight the river and whatnot, because it's like, He's, like, empowered by his own martial prowess, essentially, and the favor of the gods. But I don't know that Achilles is specifically considered, like, physically invulnerable. It's just that he's so good that nobody can touch him. So then where does the episode of him getting yeeted in the heel happen? Like, does that not happen in the Iliad? Like, am I losing my mind here? Yeah, no, the Iliad ends before Achilles is dead. So the Iliad, yeah, so book 24 of the Iliad is the reconciliation of Achilles and Priam and the return of Hector's body to Troy, and it ends with the funeral of Hector. Achilles, so what happens after that is there's another installment in the epic cycle. Um, I want to say the Ethiopica or something like that, that that's like basically the Trojans, now that Hector's dead, the Trojans call out for help and they, they summon allies from afar. So Memnon, who is an Ethiopian and also Penthesilea, the queen of the Amazons answer the call. And so Mm. we get a kind of repetition. So, and we only have this epic in fragments. We don't have very much of it. But we know that this was the epic in which there's kind of a repeat of some of the stuff of the Iliad. Another of Achilles's kind of young companions is killed, I believe. And so there's another sort of, or or somebody's, there's another like repeat of the Achilles-Patroclus situation a little bit. I can't remember who's involved in that. But then also there's the whole episode of Achilles meeting Penthesilea on the battlefield and like falling in love with her and then immediately killing her because that's how we do that's how we deal with women who are our martial equals in Greek mythology. So that stuff all has to happen. There's like almost a year because like the Iliad takes place in year like nine or whatever of a 10 year war. And so all of that stuff happens in the immediate aftermath of the Iliad. And then Achilles is shot by Paris from the like ramparts of Troy by, with the assistance of Apollo. So Paris kills Achilles We don't have that text 
from its kind of original version, as it were. Um, we only have like later versions, but we know that that's more or less how things went down. Presumably he was shot in the heel and presumably also that's where some of this stuff about his one weakness like may have come from. But again, we don't have it as far as I am aware. So Achilles is killed and then there's another brief lull in the war and then the whole Trojan horse episode happens after Achilles' death and Troy is finally sacked. So at some of this must be referenced in the Odyssey, right? Mm. Or is not, or is it just like Odysseus was in the war and now he's not? <laughs> so some of it does come up in the Odyssey. There's not a lot of specific events of the Trojan War that are retold in the Odyssey. It's more to do with themes. So in Book Ten of, I think it's ten or is it ten? No, Book Eleven. One either ten or eleven. It's not ten. It's eleven. Somewhere in there, during the journeys section of the Odyssey. I'm so sorry. I'm like really failing like Homer Scholar School right now. I just like <laughs> can't keep a single number in my brain. I swear to God, I normally like know this kind of thing. It, it's okay. I'm failing as a classicist right now because I, I don't know what's in the Iliad. So, um, <laughs> yikes. Normally, I would look this stuff up, like, on the spot, but I'm choosing not to do so, just to, like, see what I remember. In any case, one of the things that Odysseus does in the Odyssey is he goes and consults the spirits of the underworld to figure out how he's gonna get home, so he does a whole, like, necromantic divination thing with via the instruction of Circe, which is why I think that this might be in Book 11, because all of the Circe stuff is in Book 10. In any case... One of this, he meets a number of spirits of Greek heroes of the Trojan War while he's doing that, including Agamemnon, who's like, you better watch your back when you get home to your scheming wife, bro, because I didn't and now I'm dead. And Odysseus is pretty, like, alarmed by that. And it seems to be possible, it seems possible that that motivates a lot of his shiftiness when he arrives, he does arrive back to Ithaca and, and like, doesn't reveal his identity right away because he's afraid that Penelope is going to pull a Clytemnestra, which, like, being fair, they are cousins, so, like, it's not out of the question. However, Achilles did not murder his own child, so... Yes. But, yeah, exactly. Odysseus. Sorry, oh my god, Odysseus. Yeah. Odysseus. Well... Yeah, I know what's going on here. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Um, And so, but he also talks to the spirit of Achilles, who... There's not a lot of specific talk about like, stuff that happened in the Iliad, but Achilles expresses to Odysseus. And so this comes up a little bit in terms of how Achilles appears and is portrayed in The Last Olympian, I think. Because he's portrayed as this kind of... He's very, he's very like... He, he really warns Percy and is like... This is not what you want. Like becoming the the invulnerable hero, it will it will make things worse for you as far as like enhancing your flaws. And one of the things that Achilles, the spirit of Achilles says to Odysseus is like he very explicitly is like I would have preferred to be somebody else's serf and like live a long life as like a poor like, servile person and live long and in peace than to have lived the life that I had where I lost everything and died terribly just for the sake of being, like, having my name be immortal. But, like, what good was that to me in my life? 
And now looking back, like as like a dead spirit, he's looking back on on that ch- the choice that he made to seek glory and and immortality in name over pursuing a peaceful and and you know unmemorable life and regretting it. Um, I, I've talked about this before on this podcast in episodes that we've done on like other kind of Troy media, but. It's one of the most interesting things about the way that Achilles is characterized between the two, like, Homeric epics. But I think even in the Iliad, Achilles is a little bit like, oh, actually, all of this glory stuff is, is like, nonsense. Like, this isn't worth it. So he he has always been a character who, he has made the choice to pursue glory, and now that he is receiving it and is is doing the things that are necessary to get it... And, like, in the middle of that, he's realizing that it sucks and isn't worth it. And he wishes that he had made the other decision. But it's too late. He's, like, destiny has taken hold. Yeah. Just to go back to something that I, I just realized is that Clarice really hasn't, what is it, an Aristea? Is that what it's called? Yes, she does. And so, okay. Speaking of Achilles, Clarice is Achilles in this book. Clarice is Achilles, which I literally, I literally just realized that. Yeah, because Clarice's um, friend, Selena, dies wearing, oh my god, how did I miss this? Yeah, so, okay, so I'm gonna give you the full rundown. I'm gonna walk you through this, because, like, I read this and I didn't think about this at all, which is unbelievably stupid of me now that I'm thinking about this. No, for real, like, I was reading this and I was like, oh, we're, like, doing the Iliad. So, okay, so in chapter four... Percy arrives at Camp Half-Blood and there's a conflict going on between the various demigods um, and specifically between Clarice, who is a daughter of Ares. She's been a kind of an antagonistic figure towards Percy in previous books, as you may be aware, but, you know, things have partially reconciled. But so she and the other Ares campers are having a major conflict with the Apollo campers, specifically insofar as she has been refused her rightful prize of honor and is refusing to fight because of it, which is literally what happens with Achilles. This is the quarrel between Achilles and Agamemnon insofar as Apollo has been honored to the detriment of Achilles. And like in, in the Iliad, it is the, the daughter of the prophet of Apollo gets sent back. And so Agamemnon takes Achilles's prize instead. So again, it's like the honoring of Apollo to the detriment of this mighty warrior. And so Achilles slash Clarice, they have had their sense of worth in terms of their contributions and accomplishments that, like, if they are not awarded the honor that they deserve, because, like, and I think it comes from this place of the same thing that I was just talking about, that, like, there's a realization that, like, honor and glory are all they are going to get out of this fight. Like, okay, maybe you get to live, But to be honest, maybe you don't. And so, like, what is it worth to you if your reputation is being slighted? You know, if reputation's all you have, if that's the only reason that you're doing this is that honor and glory, and you're not even getting that. So Clarice says, and and this is in chapter four, my cabin doesn't get honor, I don't fight. She literally says that. And she is very explicit that like not happening i mean so i think i think just this actually works pretty well in the context of the book Mm -hmm. despite like you know this this particular battle at all for 
all of the Half-Bloods is not actually about honor. It's about, you know, not getting murdered. But a, a big part of this book is talking about, like, who gets respect and honor and who doesn't. Yes. And that that is, like, a, a major motivating factor in which Half-Bloods decide to jo- join Kronos and which ones don't. So, like, in the context of this book, that motivation still makes sense. Yeah. So it it definitely does. And yeah, like recognition and understanding that like where they come from and who they are is like not as important as that they are all like people who are contributing and and are in this fight. That's like a major theme in this book. So so that happens. And then I'm just going to chase the Clary's thread through the book real quick. So we don't hear a lot about this for a while, except for the fact that like, we have Selena Beauregard, who is a daughter of Aphrodite, her boyfriend, um, what's his name? Beckendorf. Beckendorf. Charles Beckendorf. He has died at the beginning of the book, and so she's really distraught. And so she commits herself to trying to convince Clarice to come and fight. And so Selena ends up taking the role of Patroclus in the desperate moment during the Battle of Manhattan Selena returns to the camp to appeal to Clarice, which, again, so at the beginning of Book 16 of the Iliad, Patroclus comes to Achilles in tears, having seen the dire situation that the Greeks are in, having been among the wounded. He comes to Achilles and he says, please, please come fight. Achilles refuses. He's still not going to go onto the battlefield. But, and so this, what happens in the Iliad is that he consents to allow Patroclus to, to like, lead the men. And so Patroclus goes out onto the battlefield in Achilles' armor, ends up dueling with Hector, and is killed. In The Last Olympian, Selena does not manage to convince Clarice, but she steals her armor and, uh, like, basically deceives her and, and the other Ares campers by going out onto the battlefield in, you know, in the armor of of Clarice, uh, and, and ultimately she is killed on the battlefield, which results in Clarice having her Aristea. She kills the Dracon and then is, like, she, like, absolutely wrecks shop in response to the fatal wounding of Selena. And so it's this very poignant moment, and I will remark that that whole sequence of Selena in Clarice's armor happens in chapter 16 of this book, which is the same as the book of the Iliad. I was like, bro. So that's what I meant about (laughs) certain emotional beats of this book following like the turn in terms of certain plot lines is in the exact same place, which is why the pacing is a little messed up because like, I don't necessarily know that that's where the turn should be as far as like modern novel structure, but like it really hit. I I went and looked to see if there were any other direct parallels like that and there kind of aren't, but I feel like Rick Riordan was like, well, this is going to work out. Yeah. I, <laughs> like, it probably wasn't like he completely organized the book around it. He's like, well, you know what? What if we just, like, move the chapters around a little bit? That's that's very funny. I respect the dedication on his part. It made me so happy. And there's even, like, like Percy picks a fight with the river. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, and then also after Clarice kills the dragon. She uh, hitches it to the back of her chariot and drags it around, which is what Achilles oh. does with Hector's body. Oh, she does do that. Yep. Yeah. So 
Those are like the major, major calls to the Iliad, at least the ones that really jumped out at me. I'm sure that there is other stuff that I like didn't pick up on either. But those are like the big like star things that are really clear calls. And so and this is like the, the we've said this before that like this has been the case with a lot of these uh the books in this series that like that they each often kind of correspond to a certain ancient text or or heroes like deal there's there's certain texts that get drawn on a lot so in this case it's the iliad and then it's also like there's actually quite a lot of stuff from hesiod in this one yeah the main plot is about defeating the titans Mm -hmm. and also typhon which obviously like calls back to the mythological battles between the gods and the titans and the gods and typhon i can't remember are those part of the same battle or are those separate battles mythologically Typhon is separate, I believe. Okay. So, okay, everything that I know about Typhon, I I actually know because um I was I've been reading the Prometheus Bound and Prometheus talks about Typhon as I suspect that it's all kind of part of the general mythos of the of the the titanomachy which is the primordial battle between the gods and the titans and the overthrow of the titans by zeus and the other olympians and prometheus like pops off about this around around line 200 of the prometheus bound and prometheus cites typhon as an example of another titan because he is also a titan who made zeus mad and got big time punished and is now stuck to or under a giant rock. Typhon decided to cause trouble and so Zeus struck him down. So yeah, so there's there's a lot of that stuff. And yeah, so the Titanomachy, like, there's some stuff in the Prometheus bound because Prometheus talks about it because he was very involved. There is obviously the a lot of it is in that the early kind of source the early source that we have that's like all the details of this is hesiod's or hesiod's theogony which you're gonna laugh at me allison so i remember at one point we were talking about how like i think all this stuff is in hesiod and like i i specifically remember saying on record like i don't know very much about hesiod maybe someday i'll get the opportunity (laughs) to take a class about it and then this past semester a class about hesiod was offered and i didn't take it i took something else instead so i still don't know very much about hesiod i'm so sorry Wow, taking classes that are relevant to uh, your research and not to this podcast. How dare you? In any case, a lot of this stuff comes from the Theogony, which, like, I've, like, read, but I'm not by any means an expert. But the Prometheus, some of the Prometheus story uh, and the Titanomachy is, is definitely in in Hesiod. And then the other thing that's in Hesiod is the Pandora story. Mm, yes. Though that's in the works of days. I mean, there's, it's kind of in both, but the, a lot of the detail that we're the most familiar with it, uh, with, that we're the most familiar with as far as the, the jar and all that is in the works in days. Side note about, so they, they talk about how it's Pandora's pethos. Pethos kind of slap. Yeah. They're usually very, very big storage jars. Um, I'm sure they're smaller pithoi, but on two excavations I was on, we had a bunch of pithoi, and they're enormous. 
And also, I got to see some uh, Bronze Age Pithois with fun designs on them in Cyprus. So that's a side note. I just think Pithoi are cool. They are. They're very cool. And when I say giant, I mean like human-sized. Like you could put a human in there. They were often used for storing stuff like olive oil, wine, stuff like that that needs to be in a jar. Did people put gravy in them? I don't know. I don't, I would probably say no because I don't know why you would want to put grain in a pithos. Like you can just put grain in a room. Right. Whereas like a, a pithoi are like meant for liquid usually. Although like I could be wrong. But that would be my assumption is I've never heard of them being used for like anything other than liquids. Okay. I wasn't sure. I mean, you're not the archaeologist, so that is a completely fair question. Yeah, here's my, here's my, like, I'm not an archaeologist, but I heard this one time and it it <laughs> gave me a bit of a giggle because I think it's a little silly, is that some, there's apparently, I remember hearing somewhere once that some people believe that the reason that Pandora's jar was a pithos specifically is because they're kind of, like, woman-shaped, like they're curvy, like a woman's body. Oh my god. So... Which is, like, I don't think very many women are shaped like that because they're very, like, <laughs> but they do have the kind of, if you, like, they're sh- they're kind of shaped like the bottom half of an hourglass. Well, so the, th- the thing is about Pithoi, this is a tangent, is that, like, on two sites that I excavated that are about a thousand years apart, they were b- both Pithoi, and they looked very different from one another. The ones we had in Cyprus were, I think, a little bit more oblong. Maybe not. And then the ones we had in Sicily were maybe a little bit rounder. But they're just like a regular jar, but large. Like a like a round jar. I don't know. Yeah, and also often they were like stationary. Like they're so big you don't move them. So, but yes, when there's a technology that works, you hold on to it, you know? Like a big jar. You can't go wrong with a big jar, so... Keep going. Yeah, for real. Love that. So, okay, I want to pivot back to Prometheus very briefly. So Prometheus shows up in this. He is fairly fun in this book. He basically seems to be acting as, like, the negotiator for Kronos' side. He tries to negotiate a surrender out of Percy, which, like, obviously doesn't happen because per the Prometheus Pound Prometheus is smart, but he's not very persuasive. Uh, (laughs) Like, he literally is like, he says to them, like, I went to the the other Titans and told them how to, I like, I tried to convince them that, like, they were not going to be able to just overpower the gods, the Olympians, and that they were going to need like strategy and I tried to I gave them good advice but they didn't listen to me so I went over to the other side essentially because I knew that if they weren't gonna be smart about it there was no way that they were going to win now the one thing that Prometheus says is in this it's it's funny because he says like I told Kronos that they didn't Like, he didn't have the strength that the Titans didn't have the strength to win. But that's not actually what happens, at least according to the Prometheus Bound. He tried to advise the Titans on how to win the war, and they refused to listen to him, so he switched sides. It's not that he told them straight up that they were going to lose. That's not what happened. And so Mm. the other thing that he says about that whole situation, and so in The Last Olympian, Prometheus is like, well, I see the future. Like, I always know who's going to be the winner of a conflict. So, you know, 
you should take my word for it when I say that you're going to lose. But again, in the Prometheus Bound, he says, I'm, I'm just going to quote from the Loeb translation, but my mother Themis, also called Gaia, one person under multiple names, had more than once prophesied to me how the future would come to pass, saying that it was destined that the victors should be those who excelled not in might nor in power, but in guile. So Prometheus does not see the future. He knows how to give good advice on the basis of knowledge of the future that he has, but he does not have the gift of foresight. He's had the future told to him by his mother. And so he has tried to like pick and choose the winning side and and give that advice. But he himself does not see the future. So he is fully like, I don't know whether Rick Riordan was like aware of that in the Prometheus Bound. Prometheus does not see the future. And so he is lying to Percy, which is very, very interesting to me. And like, I, even if that's not on purpose, as far as Riordan and like what he was working from, I'm going to choose that to go with that because I think it's really interesting that Prometheus is putting himself forward as someone who knows the future when in fact he doesn't. He's just really good at predicting likelihoods and understanding like strategy. That, that, that is interesting. I, I had not thought at all about that. That one just jumped out at me because I've just been like reading that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty like obvious why Rick Riordan went with the battle between the gods and the titans and Typhon for this, like, that is the obvious climax of this series. So I think that's that's pretty straightforward. I guess another thing that's really interesting in this book that's sort of like a broader thing in Greek literary tradition is prophecy. Prophecy is, I mean, prophecy comes up in like all of the books, but like prophecy is super duper important in this book because this is a book where like the big prophecy TM comes to pass and how like the prophecy is very much similar to the way other prophecies tend to pass in Greek mythology where the meaning of the prophecy is not what people think it is. Yeah, for sure. So there's a story in... It is in Herodotus about uh, Croesus, the king of Lydia. I believe it's Croesus. And how he, as part of the course of a conflict with the Persians, he sent him an envoy to the oracle at Delphi and requested to know, you know, what was going to happen. And the message that he gets back is, if you go to war with the Persians, a great kingdom shall fall. Yes, I, I know this one. Right? And of course, he takes that to mean, well, obviously, I'm a win. But he doesn't. He loses the war. And so it's his kingdom, which is a great kingdom, which ends up falling. So it is absolutely the case in the way that the Greeks thought about prophecy and about the interpretation of oracles that, like, this was cryptic. Like, There is no way to know for sure. And in fact, sometimes trying to chase, trying to either chase an outcome that you believe will be the outcome on the basis of a prophecy or trying to prevent a prophecy from coming to pass always makes everything so much worse. And we see that in this book. Hermes talks about it where he's like, I knew that if I screwed around and like tried to protect Luke from the terrible fate that I knew was coming for him, that it would actually only make it worse. And so, yes, my actions in being distant from him and, you know, all that 
made this happen in a meaningful way, but it would have happened anyways and possibly would have been even worse if I had behaved any differently. So it's better to just let the chips fall when you're dealing with prophecy. It's so interesting. And I mean, Percy kind of models that because he's very accepting of like, he doesn't really know what's going on once he hears the great prophecy. And it definitely affects him because he feels that it's about, like he knows that it's about him to to a certain degree, but he's like, if it happens, it happens. Like if I die, I die. The world has to get saved. So let's just get it done. Which is very interesting. There's this concept in Greek literature of what's called double determination, where the gods might be making you do something, but also it is your nature as a person that causes you to do that thing. So like, I've talked about this with Achilles as well, and like him making the choice that he makes that like, if he goes to Troy, he will die. Because he is never going to react to the things that happen at Troy any way other than the way that he does, and that's going to lead to his death. It's about, it's, it is his fate, like, it is prophesied to him that this is what's going to happen, but it's going to happen that way because of who he is as a person. He would have to fun, find a way to fundamentally change who he is as a person to avert that prophecy, and that's just not possible in the, like, Greek kind of mindset about fate and personality, human behavior. Yeah, that's exactly what happens in this book, right? I mean, Luke's final decision is entirely, you know, all of his decisions are like clearly in line with his personality up until his final decision to kill Kronos because he discovers that he actually, he's discovered he's done a big oopsie <laughs> for lack of a better word. Because he cares about, and that that comes because he cares about Annabeth. And Annabeth was somebody he really never stopped caring about, despite all the other stuff that he did. Exactly. I Also, thematically, that really links to something that, like, is a big theme in this book, which is family. Yes. And... Before we, sorry, I just, before we move on to the theme of family, which is really important, you're totally right, um, and I want to talk about it too, I just want to say one more thing, which is that as far as, like, the interpretation of prophecies go, like, these things are cryptic, but they're cryptic for a reason, and one of those reasons is that, like, as far as, like, factual, like, like actual factual history, as opposed to mythology, the Oracle at Delphi was... It was a young woman, a priestess of Apollo, who sat on this, like, tripod and she, like, breathed in the fumes that came up from the cracks, which we we think were probably, like, you know, there might have been some, like, gas stuff happening, or there might have been some, like, fungus stuff happening, or, like, whatever. We don't really know what was up uh, seismically. There's been, like, shifts. So it's not the same and currently, and we, like, don't know exactly what was up there. Just to clarify... That what what Julia is saying is there may or may not have been like hallucinogenic gases that were coming up through the caves, and that the ground may have shifted in a way that has gotten rid of those hallucinogenic gases. Thank you. That's more precise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as far as I understand, it's still very much up for debate at various like whether or not you know there was some sort of like in whether or not intoxication was involved in prophecy at various places in the ancient Greek world. Like there's, yeah, that seems very much like up for debate in general. It, it's an area of research, but yeah, anyway. 
Yeah, no, but the important thing is that because of that element of intoxication or whatever it is that was going on, like, these priestesses either spoke in tongues, like, spoke kind of unintelligibly or sang or whatever, something like that. And there were a group of priests, male priests, who were responsible for interpreting that unintelligible language, those like, like, you know, syllables, whatever, whatever it was, whether they were actually saying stuff in Greek, and it just wasn't clear or what, and then presenting that in the form of some kind of prophecy. So like, the Oracle herself was not prophesying. Yeah. These were people who were interpreting signs from nature or naturally induced states in people and coming up with an intelligible prophecy that, like, let's be real, was probably vague enough to be broadly interpretable. I don't think that anybody was getting anything that was actually the future, but, like, self-fulfilling prophecy is very real. And it comes back to that whole thing about, like, this all comes down to the fact that every prophecy in the Greek mindset, they come true because they observe true things about actual human people's actual human behavior. Not because they're telling the future, but because if you understand the person that you're talking to, you can guess how they're going to act. And if you understand the circumstances in which they're acting, you can probably guess what the outcome's going to be. Yeah. Like, you are telling the future on the basis of real knowledge. And like, to come a little even more full circle, like, Ultimately, that's kind of what Prometheus's whole deal is. Like, does he actually see the future? No, probably not. But he has, he understands how, and like, you see this a lot in the Prometheus Bound, he understands how tyranny works and how tyrants rise and fall because he's seen it happen. And so he is able to accurately predict what is going to happen. He has a very strong power of foresight because he has a very strong power of insight. Does So does Prometheus, does it literally translate to foresight or forethought? It's like for, so I think it's for Matus, oh, like okay. pro, I think it's often etymologized as being like pro-Matus. So like for wisdom or thought, it's not sight. Mm, yeah, yeah. Because then, you know, because then that that really goes along with the mythological characterization because forethought is not the same thing as knowing the future yeah he's deliberate and he's crafty and he thinks about things beforehand which is a contrast to his brother epimetheus afterthought who like just acts and then realizes what he's done afterwards yeah so we can uh swim our way back to family this entire book like one one of the main themes of this book is family and how our experience of family like shapes our behavior. Like the reason that people make the choices they do is all because of their experience of family. Like Percy, I mean, a good part of the reason that Percy decides to keep fighting despite the fact that he knows the outcomes are probably going to be bad for him and that he has a he has a good chance of n- not being successful and and dying a very painful death is because he has family that he's trying to protect whereas the demigods that are on the side of Kronos have been largely spurned by their family specifically their godly parent that's not true for every one like Ethan Nakamura who's 
godly parent is Nemesis. He actually, you know, seems to have had a relationship with her. That relationship involved her taking his eye <laughs> in exchange for making a a, a difference in um, how the gods treat their children. Um, and his, but his his problem is still with the fact that he and all of the other children of these minor gods are not respected by what is ultimately their family, the gods. There's a fairly funny comment about that Percy makes about how, like, you'd think it would be weird to date the children of other gods because technically the gods are all related, but, like, it's fine. <laughs> They're not that related. They're not related like that. I know, it's just, like, just to clear everything up here. Yeah, which is, like, uh, oh boy. But, you know, it's true. Like, the gods, the gods are a family. Like, what those family relationships are exactly obviously varies a lot from myth to myth, from story to story, text to text. And, like, who is exactly related how to whom is also extremely variable. But it's funny, we kind of come full circle in this book because we end with Percy having a conversation about family and what it means to be connected in that way to somebody with Hermes, which I I didn't listen back to our earlier episodes to remind myself of which book it was exactly that this happens in. But I remember talking in an earlier ep- Percy Jackson episode that we did about how like, we really got we really get like, hit over the head with the theme of family by this conversation between Percy and Hermes. I want to say maybe even in the very first book where, because, because Hermes, like after, after Luke first turns on the other demigods, Hermes is like, like he, he and, he and Percy have a conversation about that. And we come full circle on that one of like, more even than Percy has a relationship on that standing with his own father of like talking to Hermes about it, who's in this position of like being the parent of a very pivotal figure in all of this, but like kind of one step removed. So Percy is able to kind of have these conversations about like, this was kind of messed up (laughs) with, with him. Yeah. I think I, I remember the quote. I think it's from the second, I think it's from Sea of Monsters. And I think it's, um, Hermes says, families are messy and immortal families are eternally messy. Yeah. And that really comes through in this book. And I think the thing is, is there's also a really, another big theme of this book is like morality and how the gods are pretty poorly behaved. Um, And so, yeah, because you see basically regular family dynamics. This entire book is about regular family dynamics, except those family dynamics have to do with whether or not the world is going to (laughs) end. Right? Because, I mean, the the gods uh, fundamentally have daddy issues. Oh, yeah. So, okay, first of all, uh, you quoted that exactly, and it was from the Sea of Monsters. I just went and looked it up. I have read this book many times, and but I mean that's such a great great quote, right? Right, and it's exactly true. And like all of the gods have have daddy issues, and I mean to put it in slightly more academic terms, a lot of this stuff, a lot of the best adaptations of of this mythology deal directly with the fact that what we're looking at is intergenerational trauma. Mm, yeah, the gods 
are in this position of having a messed up relationship with their own father and they take it out on their kids because nobody in this family, this entire like family line knows how to behave. Yeah. And it is, it is played for comedy a little bit in this, but we see this with Hades and Demeter and Persephone, like they're in the middle of their own family squabble. So you just have this whole like tangle of family relationships that are causing all sorts of strife. Even that in the, in that like one little scene, there's like f- 15 different pieces of, of family, family squabbles going on in that same little spot. Yeah. And I think like not as much is made of it as for example, Chiron's relationship with Cronus, that Chiron is the the son of of Cronus, but mm. the Olympian gods are also the children of Cronus. Like Zeus and and Zeus Poseidon, Hades, Hera, Demeter, and Hestia are the six children of Cronus. Yeah, I think there was a I'm trying to remember, I think there was a specific reference to that. There's a mention of it. But it's not as much, not that much is made of it, which to me is like kind of like interesting because obviously like it's a it's a conflict between parents and children and like mm-hmm. the demigods who have turned against the gods are doing what the gods did to Kronos in the first place. Like basically being like, you treat us terribly, so we are going to overthrow you. Like these are... People who were treated par- like badly by their parent who are now treating their children badly. Essentially because they are powerful enough that they don't have to care. Yeah. And I think the thing is, is too, is then you see, you see the contrast, right? Like, and I mean, this is where Hestia comes in. And Hestia is pretty, pretty direct about showing Percy why people have made the decisions that they have made. Um, and that that has to do with family. But then also, you know, there's a point right before the like, big, like final conflict between Kronos and the the main characters, where Hestia in in the flames, Percy sees all these all these memories with people that he, he cares about. And that that sort of like reaffirms his decision making. Yeah, that like, ultimately, conflict with your family can motivate you to do terrible things or can really cause you to suffer, whether you then end up turning that back on them or not. But also that like family can be a real anchor and, and having strong connections with family, whether chosen or born can be what motivates you to do really great things and to really fight to protect those people. So Percy ultimately, like he, he has the benefit of having those strong family relationships himself. And that's, makes it possible for him to feel motivated to continue to fight to protect the sort of home and family in a way that those who feel unmoored from their family don't, they don't have those connections. They don't feel connected in that way. And so ultimately, obviously like family is really complicated for a lot of people, a lot of kids, but like, I definitely think that there's also an illustration, even for example, in the example of Luke, who the family that he ultimately chooses to die to protect is Annabeth, who Mm -hmm. he really deeply cares for and wants to look out for. It's not his mother and it's not his father that he makes that decision for because he does not have those relationships. And because of the souring of those relationships, that's what turns him against everybody in the first place. But that doesn't mean that there aren't familial 
or like other kind of loving relationships that are available to him that are capable of motivating him to do the right thing on behalf of other people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I think it, I don't know if he did this intentionally or not, but the fact that you describe it as anchoring, like that literally happens in the book where Percy has to jump in the, the sticks and he uses Annabeth as his like metaphorical anchor to his humanity. Okay, so I have two things that I want to bring up that are like a little smaller. One of the things that we straight up have not talked about, it, like I don't think we've even mentioned, is Nico in this book. Oh, yes. My sweet, precious child, Nico. Part of it is because I feel personally that Nico is a little shoehorned into this book. Because, so Nico is the one who comes up with the plan to dunk Percy in the river sticks, and Percy's very reluctant, and Nico pushes him to do it. But, like, it's a little, I was kind of like, like, anybody could have done this. I mean, obviously, it helps yeah. to have Nico involved, because he has he's the one who has access to the underworld. But, like, the reason that Nico is the one to do this, I think, more than anything else, is narrative convenience. Because it's very clear that there is stuff being set up for Nico in the background to form a preface for the next series, because Nico is much more prominent in the next series. Yes. Yeah, but I think he's, I think his plot line is really thematically relevant. And so, well, I don't know, it doesn't, I don't necessarily think it feels quite as shoehorned in as maybe you do, because like, Nico's whole like, plot in the series is about his family, like, his relationship with the gods is really emblematic of a lot of the like minor characters relationships with the gods yeah. and with other demigods right like he's sort of he represents somebody he represents all the other characters who have been like cast out yeah by the gods or who who are not deemed worthy by the gods or and who are not like welcome because of who their parent is um so i think having him in this book is like thematically important whether or not Riordan like narratively did that super well is another question. But I like, but I definitely do like a lot of the scene, the scenes with him and his father and Demeter and Persephone. Because as I mentioned earlier, like that is like family dynamics on a platter there. <laughs> like there's, there's a lot going on there in a very short space of time. But again, like all stuff that is sort of like, you get a sense of all these relationships very quickly because they're such familiar relationships. Like, they're things we all sort of experience. It's like, okay, well, somebody doesn't approve of somebody else's partner. Somebody else has been, like, cheated on. And then there's a kid who various parents, like, don't want around. Like, those are all dynamics we're really familiar with. Because we, we talked about this a lot, but, like, the fact that these books are aimed at kids, like, that's also, like, immediately relatable to kids. So it's really those characters are really seen through the eyes of the children and uh, the the eyes of like Percy as a child and the eyes of like Nico as a child is like, these guys are being really stupid. Yeah, for sure. The adults are misbehaving. And that's made very evident in this book, which again, is like, kind of nice for kids who are experiencing that because I think you feel like that will make you feel understood. Yeah. And like, Nico's an interesting character because he he carries a lot of thematic weight and like character building weight, but he doesn't tend to carry a lot of plot importance. Like, 
In terms of his involvement in the plot, and like, I'm gonna be totally honest, I just went and looked up a synopsis of, of the Heroes of Olympus to remind myself of like what he gets up to in that series, because I remembered him being around and like doing stuff. But it's a lot of the same kind of stuff that he's doing in this series, where he's like, in the background being the vehicle for certain stuff to happen in the background, or like, he's helping out with stuff or whatever, like his powers are very convenient for the plot. But he, yes. he's never, like, vital. There's always a way. Like, I feel like he exists to be the missing piece of the puzzle, but, like, there's always a way to contrive a workaround. So it's he's an interesting character because, yeah, he, like, he's so emblematic of all of this, like, character stuff and plot stuff. He ends up being really central, I think, to, from what I recall, to, like, kind of plots around romantic relationships and stuff in the, in the next series and about like sibling and family relation like sibling and parent relationships in this one is he like he's kind of a foil to Percy in a lot of ways all the way through in both this series and the next one but he himself is like he's kind of got his own stuff going on and is like off the page a lot so whenever he pops up I'm like ah. Uh, my baby son, who I love. Yes. But, like, why are you here? Like, <laughs> oh, like, some, some like, like, MacGuffin stuff is about to go down because Nico is kind of a MacGuffin character, which is, like, again, it's fine. It's children's fiction. The plot's going to be a little contrived at times. It's just very funny that he is often the one who is that. Yeah. I The thing is, is I just don't care very much because I love Nico, so I don't know if I really notice it at all. And I mean, he's a great character. It's just funny that I was noticing at this time that in terms of, like, the narrative construction, like, your boy is Chekhov's gun. Like... Yeah, you're right. He does this kind of, like, pop up and then do a plot thing and then go away. He pops up to, like, fix the immediate problem and then he goes away again. Because, like... Yes. It's very... Okay, I'm gonna draw a comparison here. It's very, like, Captain Marvel in Avengers Endgame, where, like, she has to be gone for most of that (laughs) movie because she is just too powerful. Like, her powers are too strong, and so if she is present for the entire movie, like, none of this nonsense had to happen. Like, Infinity War does not work as a film if Captain Carol Danvers is around for it because she could kick Thanos' ass. So, like, she yeah. needs to be not present. And so Nico needs to be, like, I mean, obviously in this book we see a lot of, like, the limitations of his powers, but he is getting stronger and stronger with every book, and it is only an arbitrary limitation that Riordan has set on him. Like, he's as powerful as Riordan needs him to be, and so that means that he has to be off the page for a lot, because if he's on the page, it's like, why does Nico not just shadow travel them to this other place i mean i think also though like in this book like it ma- it makes a lot of sense like there, yeah there's a there's a there's a good plot and thematic reason for him not to be present of course and like it's it's very interesting though that like yeah like nico has a huge amount of his own stuff going on and that is his own stuff and it is largely disconnected from the central plot and he's like off doing his business which is I don't I don't have anything against that by any means. I just find it really interesting that he as a character seems to be in that role in the narrative. And that's again, yeah. that's like my perception. I do love him. Like this is not a criticism. Yes, Nico is my sweet precious baby queer. Yeah, so ultimately like these are just good books is the thing. <laughs> They're yes. just good well-written books. They're enjoyable and I think that they 
do good classical reception work, both in the minutiae and in the broad strokes in terms of how they translate certain themes from Greek mythology to the present day and make them relatable to children without completely whitewashing everything. Like the early books have some issues with that. I would say that like that gets a little better as they go along and they become a little more serious and a little more mature that like, I still have issues with the way that Riordan, I'm always going to have issues with the way that Riordan dealt with myths that involve sexual assault or rape. Like that's always going to be a problem for me. But I think that in the broader strokes of how he deals with serious themes and presents those in a child-friendly way without completely just like bleaching out the seriousness of these very serious issues, I think that this book does handle that stuff pretty well. Yes, I realized something that we should talk about because it's is very important to the the mythos of this world is a Western civilization. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that gets brought up in near near the end of the book. It gets brought up in all of the books. It gets brought up again in this book. That's like if Olympus is destroyed, like your civilization will just be basically dissolve back into chaos. You will lose all of the like quote civilized things like art and music and like um and uh velvet paintings yeah which like (laughs) apparently it's Dionysus talking I think when that happens so like he's obviously his priorities are uh not particularly straight which is like that's valid of him I definitely think that like it continues to perpetuate problematic stuff about, like, what Western civilization is. And to be fair, I don't think they say Western civilization this time, or if they did. Oh, I- no, they do. So, like, that's obviously a problem. And also it continues to perpetuate this issue of, like, thinking about the development of societies as going from, quote, primitive and uncivilized to wards. Like, the- it's this theory of of this like anthropological theory of progress, which is really problematic and and tends to be applied in really racist ways towards like native groups that are still conducting their societies in ways that they have been for a really long time and haven't become quote civilized in the way that we think of civilization now and in North America slash Europe in like the white Western world, as it were, Western big air quotes again. Yeah. So I don't love this, that this continues to be, like, the thing, but we've talked about it a lot already. And, like, yeah, it remains the case that this was just the way that people thought about this stuff. And it still is the way a lot of the way a lot of people talk about this, which is why I wish that Riordan had not taken this tack. But I also remain convinced that he didn't know better. Yes, I think also the the thing that and I mean, this is completely open to interpretation, and I could be totally wrong here. Is it this idea of Western civilization and like the gods assisting in being a representation of civilization is very in line with how the Greek peoples would have thought of the gods and the Titans? Like when the gods show up, the civilization shows up. Like Kronos's era is very much painted as like the era of like the barbarians, essentially of chaos and lack of civilization yeah and so 
this is very much this is something that Rick Riordan kind of borrows that is like not optimal. Yeah, well, and and that like the early roots in civilize of like quote civilization are very connected to conflict between gods and titans. Like the whole Prometheus myth is like the introduction of fire and you know the coming of agriculture, but also like you know Pandora as the first woman and like the introduction of women into society and the which which is to say the institution of marriage. Mm-hmm. into society as like a grounding principle that built on which greek civilization is built and like truthfully like anthropologically speaking a lot of societies are built on their institution of marriage however that is conducted like kinship uh structures are the basic roots of anthropological structures societal structures in terms of like when we're talking about it like comparative anthropology one of the things that we compare is like who is allowed to be married to whom under what circumstances this is very very Mm. important it's very foundational to every society because there are like there are two things that every society has and those are a kinship structure and a subsistence strategy and those inform almost everything else about a given culture like yeah at the roots. And so those two things we see in the two Prometheus myths, which are the Pandora story and the fire story. Like that is marriage and food cooking, which is what differentiates humans from animals that you cook food and you get married in like a quote civilized way in the Greek mindset. And so that goes back to that conflict, that era of conflict between the gods and the Titans. And the Greeks very clearly believe that all of the rest of their culture was like built on top of those things. And to a certain degree, like that's the truth. It's just important to remember that not continuing to develop past certain quote, basic structures doesn't mean that your society is undeveloped. It just means that what you have works for you. Yeah, because I think we've pretty well said all that we need to say about that. Yeah, um, sorry, I, I like just want to really pop oh, no, off about that. That. Was, <laughs> that that was a good. That was very interesting. I just have nothing to add to that. All good. So, do you have any other like big stuff that you want to address, or can we do petty ish stuff? Yeah, we can do petty slash minor stuff. Let us go wild, go nuts. Yeah. Okay, I have. Three things. One of them, okay, I want to address one thing before we really get into, like, the stuff that's specific to this book, which is kind of a correction-ish, almost, to stuff that I said, or that we said in a previous episode. So in the last episode, I think, I think it was in in Battle of the Labyrinth, we got into the topic of pan and this question of quote panic and like this the scream that like causes the panic and so there's a mention of it in chapter three that grover like uses the like voice of pan or whatever to cause a panic and i was basically like i cannot figure out where this comes from Mm -hmm. and i just wanted to backtrack to that very briefly because I have done more research since to see if I can figure out where this comes from. Because on Wikipedia, they cite Robert Graves, who, like... Yay. Wow, that's so reliable. Yeah, like, has no citations himself and, like, made a lot of stuff up. And I still cannot figure out where this idea of, like, Pan out in the woods, this specific idea that he shouts and it causes panic 
that seems somewhat unsubstantiated, or at the very least, it is a significant alteration to what there seems to have been. So there is, the Greeks did use, like, panikos or panikon, like, this adjective that is derived from the name of the god, as far as we can tell, to talk about panic. And there is, like, a source. So, okay, I had to read a chapter from uh, Philly Burgos, that's uh, B-O-R-G-E-A-U-D, French people. Uh, (laughs) Philly Burgos, The Cult of Pan in Ancient Greece, which I think was published in the 80s, and he he has one chapter where he talks about pan and fear and kind of animality. And he cites this source that's talking about how pan, like, going roaming through the woods, playing on his syrinx, his, like, I think it's like a pipe type of, a type of pipe. Yeah, I think it's like a double pipe. Yeah, sort of. Um, like the like two that. flute situation. Yeah, it's like a flutey type instrument. I'm so sorry to William Brocklist, to whom I once, like, in whose class in the fall I translated Aulos as flute, and he was like, it's not a flute, and then gave, like, a short lecture on, like, instruments with reeds, and I was like, <laughs> I'm so sorry, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> Um, so I am going to continue to be a heathen about this. I'm so sorry, Dr. Brackless. Uh, <laughs> anyways, it was his class who I read this in also, and I'm going to continue to be wrong about what the syrinx is. Too. Okay, I, um, I, sorry, just as an interruption, as somebody who did in fact play a instrument with a reed in it, flutes don't, don't have reeds. Okay, but an Alice does, I think. <laughs> no, no reed for flute, so. Okay. It is something that is not a flute. It is a wind instrument of unknown variety. Yeah, and I am (laughs) uncertain what a syrinx is exactly, but it's probably also not a flute. I'm pretty sure it's like the double, it's got like the two. Well, that's an alas. Oh, the the two two things, the two recorder-esque things. Okay, okay. Yeah. So I don't know what a syrinx is. All right. In any case, some kind of instrument, he blows into it, he plays, quote, a shrill song, and he brings terror to the woodcutters who are in the woods. And this is cited from, uh, I want to say, like, Eustatius. It's, like, pretty late. It's, like, one of the church fathers or something like that who records this. But it's based on a tradition of this idea of, like, pan causing terror or causing fear. So there seems to be a connection between Pan and Pan's music and an experience of terror when you're out in the wild and like specifically having like a fit, like a kind of apoplexy or like mm. having some kind of like fit of of like paralysis or whatever in response to this fear. And I think that like it's ultimately it's describing the kind of fear that happens like Bro, I don't know if, like, I know you, uh, Allison, but, like, our listeners, if you've ever been, like, out on a hike and it's, like, kind of quiet and then you hear, like, the wind go through the trees or you hear, like, some, like, a branch break in the distance and you go, oh, God, I'm about to die. Like, that (laughs) is what is being described here and being attributed to, like, Pan and the music of Pan, in my opinion. Like, I think that that is what these guys were talking about. Is like, sometimes, man, you are just out in the wilderness and you don't know what's out there. And you hear some noise that you can't explain. And there is just like an animal hindbrain experience and response to that. And so that is very much connected to Pan 
at least in certain stages of Greek thought. And so my guess is that, but I can't find this like Panicon Deimos thing that is, bro, I looked this up in the Thesaurus Language Graeci. Like I went and looked this up in the TLG. <laughs> I, I found every use of the word Panicon in like the entire Greek corpus of everything. And that specific phrase, as far as I can tell, it might appear in like one church father's weird letter that I like couldn't track down. And I was like, okay, I don't know where this comes from. <laughs> so... All this to say, my original assertion that this idea that, like, Pan, like, makes a noise is, like, out there hollering and people experience fear that that's, like, totally unsubstantiated in the Greek sources, I was wrong about that, I admit. Um, I just was not, like, I didn't check up on it thoroughly enough, but it's not as direct a connection as Robert freaking Graves makes, and therefore the connection in Percy Jackson remains slightly nonsensical. I mean, I think that is kind of funny in context because Grover's playing is described as really terrible. Yeah. So that's my, that's my, like, my bad of, like, I didn't do enough research the first time and I should have been a little clearer on what sources there are and aren't, but, like. I mean, to be fair, that's really friggin' niche. Like. Yeah, I, it was only luck that I was assigned this book chapter and was therefore able to be, like, oh, like, my bad, I, like, said some stuff in a classically trained from several months ago that was wrong. I mean, I think you said to the best of your ability you couldn't find anything, which I feel like is totally fine, because, yeah, yeah, it's... Which, yeah, and this is definitely, like, this is a book that's, like, 1988, it's translated from French. But I do appreciate the update. That was very interesting. Okay, sorry. I just, like, because there was a mention of it in this book, too, and so I wanted to bring it up, but... What do you have for us that you would like to pop off about on the, like, minor to petty scale? I See, the thing is, I don't really have any petty gripes, aside from the fact that I just couldn't help, like, noticing all of the, like, plot contrivances. Like, I'm like, Mm. people's powers are very, like, they're exactly as powerful as Rick Riordan needs them to be. (laughs) Which is fine, it's a children's book. Like, I'm, you know, it's slightly annoying as an adult reading this. It's, you know, there's definitely times where it's like, okay, Kronos dropped Ethan Nakamura through the floor, so why doesn't he just drop Percy through the floor, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But that's not, that's not much of the gripe. I just, like, noticed that while I was reading. I only have one petty gripe, so maybe I'll get that out of the way, and then we can talk about stuff that we liked to finish off. Okay. This is, like, really petty, which is that there's, like, this extended scene in Chapter 10 where Percy is coordinating the defense of Manhattan, and I, it fully depends on knowing how Manhattan is laid out. This is true. And I was like, bro, like, I need, like, a little, like, obviously it's fine, but I was definitely, like, the intensity of this scene depends on understanding how Manhattan is laid out, and so this is all going over my head. So there is, in fact, a map. So that is somewhat helpful. Yeah, there's a map at the front of the book that says... a a battle map of Manhattan and it has like it has Manhattan but then it also has like all of the important things are basically big images so like the Empire State Building is like giant on this map and you know like all of the tunnels are noted out and like where various fights are so yeah like there there is a helpful map however it is hard to conceptualize and also like do you want to be flipping to a map in the middle of a book like not really well and like 
I mean, I guess, and that's also, like, that's a flaw of, like, this is something, this is, like, paratextual material that is provided to people who have a physical copy of the book, but I was reading the ebook and I didn't have that. Anybody who's listening to an audiobook, like, they wouldn't have that. So that's, like, it's great if you have and are capable of consulting a physical copy of the book, but if you are not for any reason, like, whether accessibility stuff or just because, like me, you no longer live in the vicinity of the, the public library to which you have a library card uh, and you're stuck reading ebooks for that reason. Like I was not able to access that. So definitely I like lost out a little bit on understanding what was going on in a lot of the kind of battle of Manhattan stuff. Like it's clear enough. It's, it's fine. But I was definitely like, where are they? Yeah. So that is my one true petty gripe for this book. Okay, I want to I want to hear your list of bits. Yeah, I ha- I just have a small list of like funny bits. They're just Rick Riordan is good at the bit, you know, and my bar for humor is very low. <laughs> I basically my bar for humor is the same as like a 10-year-old, I guess. So, Aries kids Valid. getting cursed with poetry is really funny. Like, running around, like, yelling and rhyming couplets. Like, this is because of the conflict between Ares and Apollo's children. Yeah. Also, just the fact that Apollo's, like, just really bad at poetry. And when he, like, bursts into a poem, we're just like, oh, no, we're just gonna, we're just gonna do our best to avoid this. Yeah, bro. (laughs) Also, a lot of the demigods, um, okay, um, a lot of the demigods, their, their last names are puns. So many of them have, like, puns or, like, yeah, like, etymologies in their names that are, like... I appreciate the detail so much. Like, Selena, like, Beauregard, she's the daughter of Aphrodite. Beauregard, she's nice-looking. There's the... Hermes' kids are... uh, Stoll is their last name. There's Demeter's daughter is, is Katie Gardner. One of Apollo's kids is called Lee Fletcher. I could go on, but he really, he was really dedicated to the bit. And I was impressed because the thing is, is they're all real ass names. He really like popped off with that. And I am not above a good pun. So uh, yes, I really do like that. The whole scene with Dionysus in the bar where Dionysus is just like telling Percy stuff I can't even remember honestly what happens in that scene other other than he's like you got to save western civilization and like the things he less lists as western civilization like what is a velvet painting I don't even know what that is but it sounds enormously tacky I refuse to look it up because I just have accepted into my heart that it's something that's enormously tacky and like nobody would be interested in it except for this particular uh Dionysus yes I also like how Dionysus is partly motivated for civilization to survive based on him wanting to defeat this like arcade game. That's a petty energy that I can respect. Yeah. The final sort of really funny, the other like bit that I think is funny is that's like a consistent bit is like the underworld bureaucracy. Yes. <laughs> um, The fact that like there's a line that's like easy death that you go through and it's like congrats you can avoid your judgment just go straight straight on till you're like depressing floating around in the fields there's also the the bit where um artemis is like all my hunters that died are gonna go to elysium like staring pointedly at hades and hades like i'll expedite their applications yeah it's a good bit it's yeah other things that aren't like bits but that were experiences I had while reading the book was a 
one of the phones they pick up was a BlackBerry. And I'm like, oh, boy, if that isn't a throwback to 2009. <laughs> there were a few things like that that really hit the nostalgia trigger for me in this book. I like can't, I didn't make a lot of notes, so I can't remember what any of the other ones are. But that one was for real. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, is this ever of a time and place? That is very much like high school tween te early teen experience was like the cool kids had the blackberries yeah oh my god this is pre the iphone existed but like it was still too much of like a its own like thing for for the youths if there are any youths listening who don't remember this like the iphone was like kind of a thing but most people didn't have like like touchscreen smartphones yet so what people had were were blackberries that was the thing that was like hip with the kids and also with the business people um and the other thing is there's the bit where like may castellan and like goes to the camp with like luke as a baby and it's like people with early 90s haircuts and i was like early 90s that's way too early and then i remember that i was born in the mid 90s yeah i was like right luke is a baby in the early 90s i was born in the mid 90s this makes sense as a timeline um, I think it's me also partly because I was thinking of the books like I'm like, oh, they're kids. And it's like, no, this was this was written when I was a kid. And so yeah. it's 2009. Like, <laughs> yeah, them being born in the 90s, like makes sense. Yeah. Contextually. I would like to briefly shout out uh, Paul Bl Blovis, not just a stepfather, but the father who stepped up. <laughs> <laughs> Truly an excellent character <laughs> whose existence I had completely forgotten about until, like, reading these books again. And now I'm like, oh my god, I love this character so much. He's actually so delightful. He is just so excited about everything that's going on. And he's like, sure, why not? Which, like, I can respect that attitude. And, yeah, I really love, I really love that character. I like how a giant dog appears in his living room. And he's like, oh, cool, this is actually real. Well, and he, like can't see anything that is going on he is like seeing something else the whole time yeah and he's just like on board anyways which is i aspire to be that gung ho <laughs> he was like oh did i just destroy a monster and they're like yes yes you did he's like cool <laughs> like i can't see <laughs> yeah he is no he's seeing something else so yeah that's that's that and then my one other shout out about this book and like this is one of my absolute favorite things i love Hestia as the last Olympian. Yeah. I just, like, I love Hestia. I think she's so interesting. And if I, I would love to, like, do some academic work on her because I think she's, I just think she's neat. Like, Marge Simpson, Pig. <laughs> but also, I just, like, I have this whole hang-up in my brain about how Hestia, like, Hestia is technically the oldest. Yes. Like, she was born first, but, like, Kronos eats the children in the order that they're born, and then they're regurgitated in reverse order. And so they're often taken to be kind of in order of age in that reverse order mm. in terms of the way they get talked about. So like the it's like Zeus and then Poseidon and then Hades and then Hera and then Demeter and then Hestia is like the reverse order. That's the order that Kronos spits them back up in. Yes, I'm currently looking at the text of the Theogony. I did not remember <laughs> that off the top of my head. But, like, Hestia, so Hestia is simultaneously the oldest and the youngest, which to me is very interesting because, and, like, she doesn't get a lot of, like, cred. She's more, she, her, like, Roman incarnation is, I think, 
more revered in that context. She becomes Vesta in the Roman context and, and, you know, the whole like thing with the Vestal Virgins, like it's much more of a big deal in the Greek context. My understanding or my memory is that we don't really have like temples to Hestia. I don't know of any, like I've never heard somebody be like, yes, this was a temple to Hestia. And I think the reason for that is that she was a household God for a lot of people. And so people would have shrines to her in their house Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I, like, don't actually know. Yeah, I don't know either. It's the kind of thing that I have always, like, wanted to do some research on and have just, like, never had the opportunity to do so. So, fingers crossed. Like, shout out to my profs for the fall. Please give me an opportunity to talk about Hestia. I So, I just, like, forgot that Hestia existed as a Greek deity because, yeah, you don't hear about her. Like, I don't think I've ever, I've never talked about her in an academic context that I can think of. But, yeah, Hestia has serious older sibling disease. Yes. Yeah. Oldest daughter syndrome. Yes. For real. Hestia do be keeping the peace. Yeah, she is, she is keeping the peace. She is literally keeping the lights on while everybody else is out, like, <laughs> having a pissing contest in the streets of New York. So, shout out to Hestia. She's the best. The last Olympian, for real. She's also like, I don't need glory. I just need you all to stop fighting. Yes. I will give up my seat and I will sit by the fire and tend the flames of our family. I love her. Yes. Anything else that you want to talk about, Allison, before we wrap up the year? No, I think I have covered everything that I want to talk about, which is good because we've been recording for a long time. Yes. You know, I think this was a good wrap up because like, even though we didn't, I feel like we managed to talk for two hours, but I feel like we didn't actually have that many things to say. It was just that like, he was using sources that were interesting and I happened to know a lot about, so I was able to pop off. But like, this book it does exemplify, I think, a lot of what Riordan does and does well, which is just, like, that integration in a way that is able to, like, be relatable and understandable for modern audiences, even, like, children, without losing a lot of the central kind of ethos of some of this, like, Greek stuff. And also without, like, forgiving some of the Greek stuff for being messed up, because some of it's really messed up. But, like, we're, there's, there's a lot of just, like, thematic resonances and connections that you can make without it feeling like Riordan is being like, look how much I know. Or, like, he's just wrong about stuff. Yeah. In conclusion, Rick Riordan is good at his job. And he continues to be good at his job. And so, uh, shout out to Rick Riordan. This was very enjoyable uh, as a little podcast project. Yes. Nobody is doing it like Rick Riordan. And <laughs> that is just, that is just facts. So thank you to Rick Riordan for giving us the opportunity to spend all of this time talking about your books because they were fun to read. And we look forward to talking more about stuff that hopefully we like now that we are done talking about these and also probably talking about a bunch of stuff that we really don't like because nothing quite stands up to Percy Jackson like as much as these books have problems there's a reason that they've been so influential on an entire generation of like kids in general and classicists in specific and that they have continued to be popular like Riordan's work continues to be popular and they hold up and he has been able to continue working on this like kind of classical material like he has written so many more books about this stuff 
because he just takes such a like expansive holistic view on it and it's really yes helpful like useful and interesting and productive for the way that people for people's knowledge and curiosity i feel like we've had conversations in recent episodes about like good reception being stuff that makes you curious about the source material you know yeah and i think this this really does it certainly did for me so yeah for sure it's inspiring in a in a very Mm -hmm. positive way and so thank you rick riordan for inspiring us maybe next we should do the book that inspired me to become a classicist (laughs) and then we can compare and contrast which is Madeline Miller's The Song of Achilles. It, is it really? Oh, buddy, I read that shit in high school and it changed my life forever. Oh, no. Oh, no. I didn't know There's that. a reason that I'm an Iliad scholar, babe. Thanks for listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations, and on the ancestral land of the Ho-Chunk Nation. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. And if you'd like to support our podcast, you can find us at patreon.com slash classically trained pod, where we also post extras and outtakes. Our next episode will be on the 1997 Disney film Hercules with special guest Dr. Victoria Austin. As always, be well and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did. <laughs>